0: Their name of the procession is Taking Your Troubles to Church. Now, as you know, if you've been here uh, with us over the past couple weeks, that Solomon, he's he's researching life and he's been doing his search as if there was no God. And he taught us in the first two chapters that without God, everything is empty and without meaning. And he taught us in chapter 3 that even with God, there's still some problems that we have to acknowledge. And we have to learn that God has a plan, and His plan is good, and His purpose is clear, but sometimes His program is mysterious. And so now we come to chapter 5, and is going to give us some instruction that is so close to the life that we live today that it's almost eerie. And in chapter 5, he gives us several things we need to know when we face the uncertainty of life. And the first thing he says is, don't blame God for our situation. Look at uh, verse 1, chapter 5. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth. Let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. So literally in verse 1, Solomon tells us that we are to walk carefully before him. And when we go through tragedy and, and difficulty, sometimes the first inclination is, is to point our fingers heavenward and we begin to blame God for everything that's going on in our lives. And Solomon warns us that we are to walk carefully in the presence of God, to walk prudently when you go to the house of God, And we we got our expression, watch your step. Solomon says, watch your step when you go before God with accusations, what he may have done that we don't agree with. And he's talking here, when he talks about going to the house of God, he's talking about the marvelous temple that was named after Solomon. It's the Temple of Solomon. And he's telling those that that are confused about life and are frustrated with their situation at the time, he's telling them to be careful when you go to the house of God. And he, and he's telling us today when we come to the house, we're to draw near, and we're to understand, <clears throat> we're to draw near to him, and and we're come to to understand and to learn. We're not to come with our own agendas, our own issues, and we're to come to God's place, which is the place where He meets with His people, and we're to have the attitude of reverence, worship, and expectation when we come to His house. He not only tells us to walk carefully before Him, but He also tells us to, to talk cautiously, cautiously to Him. Look at verse 2 again. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let, not, <clears throat> and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. Now, the psalm tells us here that we're to be careful how we accuse God. We're to approach Him carefully, and not be rash in what we're saying. We're not to have knee-jerk responses to Almighty God because of what is going on in our life. Why is it? It seems like every time something happens, God is the first person we blame. And Solomon says, we're not to say anything in haste. And here, you know, the searcher, he's talking about the tendency to complain and murmur about what has been handed to us in our life. So when we gripe about our circumstances, you know, just our daily life, we're actually complaining about God, and what what is saying here is, is God is in heaven and He sees everything, and and we're on Earth and our vision is very limited, and if we could see what God sees, we wouldn't be saying what we're saying, and that's what Solomon's is teaching us. In other words, if we knew what God knew, we would respond in a different way, and it would be easy in our situation as we look at our devastation, destruction, and hurt to point our finger and to blame Him. For what is wrong in our life, but Solomon warns us against doing that. And you say, Well, Jason, that's pretty harsh for you to be saved when there's so many people hurting. Well, it's the best thing I can say because the Bible is what the Bible says. And number two, it will save us from further hurt, is what Solomon's telling us. So the first thing Solomon says, he tells us, don't blame God. Here's number two, don't bribe God with a vow. Look at verse four. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it has no pleasure in fools, pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. What do we normally do when we get in, get in a tough situation? God, if you'll just get me out of this, I'll, I'll do this. Raise your hand if you've ever done that. I do it all the time, still to this day. This has really spoke to me about doing that. And Solomon's saying, if we do make a vow, be serious about it. Don't forget to keep it. And he tells us it's better not to make a vow than to make one and not keep it. And and God doesn't play games with us, and that's what Solomon is telling us. And we should never promise God that we'll do this, or we'll do that, if he'll just do this, or he'll do that for us. And Solomon gives us a little bit of commentary on that in the next verse. Look at verse 6. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the master of God, well, that was an error. Why should God be angry (coughs) at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams of many words, this is all vanity. But fear God. In the midst of what we cannot understand, we need to fear God. We reverence God. We say God is greater than what we can comprehend. His ways are higher than my ways, His thoughts than my thoughts. Then accuse God or to blame God or even bargain or bribe God. We need to believe God and we need to fear Him. When you don't know what to do, and 2 plus 2 don't equal 4, you step back and you believe God. You reverence Him and you fear Him. So Solomon tells us to watch your mouth. <clears throat> In chapter 5, 6, it says, Don't go to the messenger of God and say you don't understand. Well, I know what I told you, God, but I really didn't mean it. The fact that you're not dealing with God's messengers, you're dealing with God Himself, and God takes you at your word. Don't play games with God. David tells us the Psalms <clears throat> about a vow he made, and that's the Psalms 66, verse 13. It's uh, verse 13 and 14. Hey, David says, I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. David said, When I was in trouble, I made a vow to you, but I want you to know I'm going to your house, and I'm going to keep that vow. So so we learned two things. Don't blame God and don't bribe God. And the third thing, we're going to kind of go in a little bit of a different direction. Uh, Don't be surprised at the government's response. Look at verse 8. If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in the providence, do not marvel at the matter. For high official watches over high official, and high officials are over them. Moreover, and the prophet of the land is for all, even the king is served from the field. And what he's saying here, when you see any justice in the government, don't be astonished, or don't be surprised. Solomon psalm tells us, don't marvel at this. There's a, there's a sign in the Pentagon office that reads, The secrecy of my job does not permit me to know what I'm doing. Now, have you ever felt like that when you're dealing with the government? Solomon, thousands of years ago, wrote the words <clears throat> in the Word of God, and he says, When the government messes up, do not be surprised. The government is the government. It is flawed humans. What is the government? It's not an institution. It's not a building. It is flawed human beings who make good decisions sometimes and they make bad decisions sometimes. When they make good decisions, we cheer them on. When they make bad decisions, we go on Huddy shows and we vent our spleen out, griping about them, and it doesn't do any good. So what Solomon's saying here: officials you're, that you're angry with, <clears throat> they report to other officials, who report to other officials over them, and the a bad government is still better than no government. And if you don't believe that, look at these countries where anarchy reigns. And we, as we as believers, we need to do everything we can. To upgrade our government through the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, but we don't need to get stuck in false impressions of what the government can do for us. So don't blame God for your situation. Don't bribe God with a valve. Don't be surprised at the government's response. And number four, don't believe the lie about riches. And we're prone to reason like this. If I just had more money, if I was just a little better off financially, This wouldn't happen to me and I'd be better I could handle it much better. And Solomon warns us against this. Money is not the answer. And Solomon's going to give us five things we should know about money. Number the first the more you have, the more you will want. Look at verse ten. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This is also vanity. So number two, <clears throat> the more you have, the more you'll spend. Look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase, <clears throat> they increase who eat them. So what profit has the owners except to see them with their, with their eyes? And I read this quote by William MacDonald. <clears throat> and he says that when a man possesses increase, there seems to be a corresponding increase in the number of parasites who live off of him. And Psalm and is saying the more you have, the more you'll want. The more you have, the more you'll spend. Number three, the more you have, the more you'll worry. Look at verse 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. John Rockefeller at the age of 53 was the only billionaire at the time. He made over a million dollars a week. But he was a sick, sick man, and he lived on crackers and milk because he worried about his money. When he started giving his money away, his health changed radically, and he lived to celebrate his 98th birthday. Money is not the answer to your anxiety. Money may be the cause of your anxiety. Number four, the more you have, the more you'll lose. Look at verse 13. There are severe evil which I have seen under the sun, Riches kept from their owners to his heart. But those riches perished through misfortune. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have these things, but Psalm is making a point you can't lose what you don't have. And the more you have, the more you'll lose. And here's the last thought the more you have, the more you'll leave. Look at verse uh, 14 through 17. <clears throat> when he begates a the son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from labor, <coughs> which he may carry away with his hand. And this also is severe evil. Just exactly as he came, he shall go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days also he eats in darkness, and how much sorrow and <coughs> sickness and anger. And Psalm is saying, the more, <coughs> the more you have, the more you're going to leave. And somebody asked. Well, how much did the rich man leave? He left it all. U-hauls are not pulled by Hearst. Whatever you have, you will leave. <clears throat> so you got five things he tells us about money: the more you have, the more you want; the more you have, the more you'll spend; the more you have, the more you'll worry; the more you have, the more you'll lose; and the more you have, the more you'll leave. And now he tells us uh, two things that that you need to know about God. And the first of those is your ability to earn money is a gift from God. Look at 18. Here's what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor in which (coughs) he toils under the sun. All the days of his life God gives him, for it is his heritage. And what Solomon is is saying here is telling you, don't be interested in money or good living, just remember, whatever you have, it is from God. Whatever we have, whatever we earn, God gives that to us. And we ought to be thankful for our jobs. It is a gift from, is a gift from God. And, you know, and that goes into our tithing and for anything, you know, is... We all, I noticed this morning, we was a thousand dollars behind last week on our budget. And sometimes I think all of us, me included, sometimes need to step back and And think of, you know, my job is a gift from God that allows us to do that, or to give God what is His. Number two, your ability to enjoy money is a gift from God. Look at verse 19. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, and given him power to eat it, receive his heritage, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift from God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God knows him, busy with the joy of his heart. So what is saying here is he gives you the ability to earn it and the ability to enjoy it. <clears throat> and he gives us such ability to enjoy it that we don't even think about it many days you have on this earth. And you go through life because you realize God's given you the ability to earn it, and it's because, <clears throat> from, it's because that's from him you have the ability to enjoy it. You live every day in joy of what God has given you because that is a gift from God. I'm going to close this first session right here with a quote from Walter Kaiser. It is better to receive wealth as a gift from God, along with God giving the ability to enjoy it, than to see wealth as an end in itself. How sad that man could spend all the days working and sweating to receive the enjoyment that God offers as a gift, if they would just seek it in the manner that he, in his extended, excellent, and beautiful plan has chosen to give it. So it's 20 after now, Now Night's gonna be a little short. Uh, Let's break to about 525 and then uh, we'll finish out with with, uh, Dr. Jeremiah.
1: Today she hides in her apartment.
0: For the first time in her life,
1: she said she has fear and nerves to deal with. Everyone has tried to put the touch on her and she said, people are so mean. I hope you win the lottery and see what happens to you. When the McCougarts of New York won the Irish sweepstakes, they were happy. Pop was a steam fitter. Johnny, 26-year-old son, loaded crates on docks. Tim was going to night school. Pop took the million that he won, and he split it up with his sons. They all said the money wasn't going to change their lives or their plans. A year later, the boys weren't speaking to their father. They weren't even speaking to each other. Johnny was chasing expensive racehorses. Tim was catching up with expensive girls. Mom accused Pop of hiding his poke from her. <laughs> Within two years, all of them were in court for non-payment of income taxes. And Mom said, it's the devil's own money. Both boys were studying hard to become alcoholics. All these people had hoped and prayed for sudden wealth. They all had their prayers answered, and all of them wrecked their life on a dollar sign. We finished up the fifth chapter by learning five important things about money and two important things about God. Let me remind you of those seven things. Five important things about money we learned in the fifth chapter. They're very simple. The more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the more you spend. The more you have, the more you worry. The more you have, the more you lose. And the more you have, the more you leave behind. Those are all right in the text in the fifth chapter of Ecclesiastes. You can read them for yourself. But then we learned two things about God that balanced off what we learned about money. And those two things are that our ability to earn money is a gift from God. And our ability to enjoy money is a gift from God. We all are pretty well focused on number one concerning God, but the second one is a little new to us. Not only does God give us the ability to earn money, he is the one who gives us the ability to enjoy what we have. So if we earn money and we don't have God, we will end up not enjoying to the fullest that which God has enabled us to have. Now, in chapter 6, Solomon is going to continue his discussion kind of in a negative way. He's told us that God is the one who helps us to earn money, and he's the one that helps us to enjoy money. Now he's going to show us what happens if we try to do this apart from God. The first de that he wants us to avoid is this one. He wants us to understand that our money won't bring meaning to our life. Without God, money cannot bring meaning to your life. And he brings two insights to his journal that will help us. Notice in the first two verses of the sixth chapter, Solomon starts out the sixth chapter with these words, "'There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. Now, most scholars believe that when Solomon writes these first few words in the sixth chapter, that he's talking about himself, that he's talking about his own life. You remember now, Solomon wrote this book at the end of his existence on earth, and he's looking back over his shoulder, and he's making some some observations about how he had lived. Solomon, as we all know, was one of the wealthiest and wisest men who ever walked on this earth. In fact, he was the wealthiest man who lived before his time, and the Bible says he was the wealthiest man to ever live even after that time. It's hard for us to compute the wealth of the great king of Solomon, but perhaps it would be good for us to remember how he came into such riches. When Solomon was 20 years old, one day the Lord appeared to Solomon while he was presenting a sacrifice to God, and God said to young Solomon, Solomon, I want you to ask anything you desire of me, and I will give it to you. I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. What would you ask for if God said to you, and think back to when you were 20 years of age, what would you ask God for if he said, you can have anything you want, just ask me for it and I'll give it to you? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you know that when Solomon was presented with that opportunity, he asked God for a very strange thing. He said, Lord God, I want you to give me a hearing heart so that I might be able to judge this great people, Israel, fairly and justly. He said, Lord, I, don't, I want you to give me the ability to help people, and to judge them fairly. Now, God was so impressed with Solomon's request that in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, we read these verses. Here's how Solomon got to be so rich. Then God said to Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor even have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Now watch this. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, Solomon. And I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have had who were before you, nor shall any after you have the light. Solomon asked God for the right thing. He got everything he asked for, and he got all the riches that made him the wealthiest man in the world. Now, Solomon started out with those riches, and he was honoring God at the beginning of his life. And if you read the history of Solomon, you will see that he lived for God. He built the great temple of Solomon that was a place of worship. But God had warned Solomon in the early days of his life that he was not to intermarry with foreign wives. He was not to go into other cultures and marry the women from these other cultures because God knew that if he did, he would become corrupted by their evil ways, by their idolatry. Solomon was a, was a woman's man. <laughs> you know, he, was, he loved women. And he saw some of the beautiful women from the foreign cultures, and little by little, he began to marry them. And as he married these foreign wives, they began to corrupt his life, so that God was put on the side. God was moved out of the center. And now, as he looks back over his life, most people believe he's writing about his own experience, about trying to find meaning in his money without God. Now. If you will follow his logic, you will see how strongly he presents this argument. He has told us already up to this point that the only way you can enjoy your wealth is to allow God to give you the ability to do it. If you have your Bibles, look back over into the fifth chapter, chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes and the 19th verse. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him the power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? The ability to enjoy what you have, to take what you have earned and make it meaningful in your life. How do you get to do that? God gives it to you as a gift. When God is at the center of your life, he takes everything that you have and he makes it meaningful. When, when Solomon began to push God to the out outer circumference of his life, when he began to sin by intermarrying with the foreign wives, God became a non-player in his walk. And because of that, he began to lose the sense of well-being that he had had at the beginning. Warren Wiersbe says it this way in one of his books. He says, to enjoy the gifts without the giver is idolatry, and this can never satisfy the human heart. ENJOYMENT WITHOUT GOD IS JUST ENTERTAINMENT AND IT DOESN'T SATISFY, BUT ENJOYMENT WITH GOD IS ENRICHMENT AND IT BRINGS JOY AND SATISFACTION. NOW, I TOLD YOU THAT SOLOMON FEELS VERY STRONGLY ABOUT THIS POINT BECAUSE HE TOUCHES ON IT SEVERAL TIMES IN THIS BOOK, BUT I DON'T KNOW OF ANY PASSAGE THAT IS STRONGER THAN THIS ONE IN TERMS OF HOW HE ILLUSTRATES THE POINT HE'S TRYING TO MAKE. He uses two illustrations in verses 3 through 6 of the sixth chapter to bring home to us in a very forceful way the danger of looking to our money for meaning. Notice what he says. If a man begets a hundred children, my, what a thought that is. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place? In his first illustration, Solomon is obviously exaggerating. We call this in literature hyperbole he takes it to the ultimate exaggerated extreme so that he can make the point point. and he is saying suppose a man could live twice a thousand years suppose he could live two thousand years why obviously no one has ever lived that long methuselah was the oldest man who ever lived on the face of the earth and he lived to be 969. Solomon is taking the man who lived the longest and saying, suppose a person could live twice that long on the earth. And then, if he's not exaggerating in the length of the man's life, he surely is exaggerating in the number of his children. He said, suppose a man lives to be 2,000 years old, and in the process, he fathers a hundred children. Did you know that Solomon's own son, Rehoboam, came very close to doing that? Just a little Old Testament biblical trivia. Look up on the screen at 2 Chronicles 11:21. 21. Now, Rehoboam loved Machah, the granddaughter of Absalom, more than all his wives and his concubines. For he took 18 wives and 60 concubines and begot 28 sons and 60 daughters. Whoa. In case you didn't add that up, That's 88 children. But I want to remind you, it took 18 wives and 66 concubines to pull it off. (laughs) What Solomon is saying here, and I want you to get this out of the context of the Old Testament, the two things that symbolized God's blessing upon a Jewish family were longevity and children. A Jewish family was considered blessed by God if the patriarchs in the family lived long and if they had lots and lots of children so solomon is saying that having wealth and having a large family both of these things will leave you empty if god is not in it they will not bring meaning to your life if god is on the outside in fact When he talks about this fictitious man here in the book of ecclesiastes he talks about this man as having had no burial he says in verse three if a man begets a hundred children and lives many many years so that the days of his years are many but his soul is not satisfied with goodness or indeed he has no burial that's a very interesting thing because for a jewish person not to have a burial was the sign Uh, Oh, it was a terrible sign. It was a sign of total disrespect and dishonor. There is in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah and the 22nd chapter the story of a king by the name of Jehoiakim who was was not buried and was not honored and didn't have a funeral, and it's an illustration of the most awful thing that could happen. What Solomon is saying is this. This man has all the money he wants. He lives to be 2,000 years old. He's got hundred children but his children don't want anything to do with him when he dies they don't even come to his funeral he doesn't have any relationships with them his family is in disrepair and what he had hoped to get by getting all of this wealth has been so empty because it doesn't deliver what he had hoped it would deliver now King Solomon goes to the other end of the cycle and he uses a stillborn baby as his illustration according to solomon such a child never sees the light of day never experiences the disappointments that the rich man has known the stillborn baby knows only the shadow of a moment of life the man in solomon's story lived two times a thousand years but both that man and the stillborn child ended up in the grave remember this is what we learned in chapter 3 In the third chapter, in the 20th verse, we read, "'All go to one place, all are from the dust, "'all return to the dust.'" Solomon's talking about the grave. He's saying a man lived 2,000 years. He ended up in the same place as the stillborn baby who hardly lived a moment on planet Earth. Here's the point he's trying to make, and don't miss it. I read this over and over again. I told Donna this week, this is maybe the hardest passage in Ecclesiastes, but when you really see it, oh, is it powerful. Listen to him. The point that Solomon is making in this first paragraph is he is telling us that the futility of life without God and without meaning is worse than never having been born at all. Wow. So whatever you do, don't think if you just have more, you're going to find meaning in life. Solomon says such an existence can be worse than never having lived at all first de sac Don't get on that one. Don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying it's wrong to be wealthy. He's not saying it's wrong to have riches. He's not saying it's wrong to be prosperous. He's saying it is meaningless to have all of it if God isn't in the picture, because only God can give you the wisdom to know what to do with what you have. I want to tell you something I've learned in talking to people who have a whole lot more money than I'll ever dream of having. Money for many people is a burden. It is a real burden to know what to do with what has been trusted to their care. Now, the second to zac Solomon wants to see is number, number two, you won't find joy in your job. You, won't, you say, Pastor, boy, i give a second to that one. I don't have any joy in my job well he's not saying here that you can't find meaning in your work but he's saying you can't find ultimate joy in your career what a modern contemporary uh, instruction this is for all of us notice verse 7 he says your job can't satisfy your soul all the labor of man is for his mouth and yet the soul is not satisfied you ever know anybody like that they're out all the time. Their career's number one. They just go like crazy. I ask, sometimes ask the men of our church, why aren't you in church? Why aren't you in, why aren't you in Bible study? Oh, man, I got I to gotta get my career right. Uh, this is the most important time in my career. I've got to do this or I'm not going to make it. But what Solomon is saying is, yes, you might have to put in some extra hours to get your career started, but if you let your career become the focus of your life, it will never satisfy you. It can't satisfy your soul. We're going to find out in a few moments why, but it never will. Man works to satisfy his insatiable desire for pleasure, and he wants a sense of well-being, and yet he seems to always fall short. No matter whether he is wise or poor, he can't satisfy his desire on his own. And here's the thing we need to understand. God has so wired us that without him, we don't work. God has, he's the manufacturer. He's the creator. He's wired us so that without him, we don't work right. Oh, we can go through the motions. We, we can look like we're working right, but we won't work right. And that's what Solomon is trying to say. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with a good career, but don't do it without God because if you do, you will end up at the end of your life with a sense of frustration and despair and it won't give you what you hoped it would give you everywhere we go we run into people who are in churches that are bigger or smaller than ours and you know what i've learned a pastor who's in a church our size is always hoping he could get a church a little bit bigger a guy who's working in a church this size, and you know what there's always a church that's bigger no matter where you go you think you've seen it all and then somebody rolls out a 30000 member church if all you're after is the next step Then all you're going to be is disappointed and that's what solomon is saying it won't satisfy he goes on to say your job can't satisfy your soul your mind can't replace your heart notice for what more has the wise man than the fool what does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living you may have the greatest education in the world solomon says but if you don't know god you're on the same level as a fool A fool and a wise man are exactly the same when they stand before Almighty God. God doesn't—when you stand before God someday, he's not going to ask to see your diploma. He's not going to want to know what your degrees are. He, he, He isn't going to care about your continuing education program. All he's going to care about is, do you know him? And Solomon is saying, whatever you do in your career climb, don't let your mind replace your heart. And thirdly, number C, he says, don't let your dreams replace reality. Verse 9 says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. Now, that's, that's an interesting little phrase, and I grabbed hold of that and tried to understand what it means. You know what it really is? It's Solomon's rendition of, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. <laughs> He's saying here, there's nothing wrong with dreaming and dreaming big, but he is warning us not to live in a fantasy world of unreality don't sit around waiting for things to get better before you start enjoying your life does anybody ever do that well when we get this done we'll get in that house and when we get that done we'll get a condo and when we get that done then we'll get a boat and when we get that done then we'll do this and we're always saying when we get when we retire we'll do this and how many of you have noticed that people keep planning for the future and planning for the future they never live here they always want to live out there and by the time they get out there they die Is that true you know people just live their whole life hoping that someday they're going to get it together so they can really enjoy life they finally get there and they don't have anything left solomon is saying something so carefully to us and he says it over and over again in this book what are you supposed to do between now and when you get to heaven enjoy what god has given you don't be so caught up in earning money and building a career that you don't have time to enjoy your life as it is today take your children out give them a hug take your grandchildren someplace that you didn't intend to take them go someplace and do something with your partner take that trip that you thought you might take someday take it now don't wait until it's too late don't let your fantasies replace your reality that's what he's saying now As we come to the end, we've talked about the fact that you won't find meaning in money, and you won't find joy in your job. Here's the last thing, and we'll be finished in just a moment. You won't find answers with your arguments. Solomon here anticipates that when a person is presented with this truth, that in order for life to work, God has to be at the center, that they're not going to understand that, and probably they're going to want to argue about it. Why is it that way? So, he gives us four truths. They're not necessarily parallel, but they're kind of sequential, and I want to go through them with you as we close today. First of all, he wants us to understand that God has ordained life as he desires it to be. Notice in verse 10, "'Whatever one has, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man.'" Why can't I find meaning without God? Why is, why is it impossible for me? If I work hard in my career, if I build a strong dynasty of financial aid, why can I not find meaning in that? Why do my accomplishments leave me empty when I work so hard to achieve them? The reason that riches fail to bring happiness rests in the ordinance of God. The ordinance of God dictates the incapacity of worldly things to bring meaning and enjoyment to our life. Let me just ask you this question hypothetically do you think that almighty god could have designed a world in such a way that real meaning came with the accumulation of money could he have done that is he is he, surely he could suppose he could have designed a world that would have worked on this basis the farther you climb the corporate ladder the more meaning you find in life could he have done that absolutely he chose specifically not to do that He chose specifically to design us in such a way that while those things are important, they can't really fill the void in our life. It's by the ordination of God that life is the way it is. We didn't do that. It's not a church thing. It's a God thing. God says, here's how life works, and I'm not gonna change it for you. This is the way it is. Now, Solomon then says, that being true, arguing with god is an exercise in futility notice verse 10 again he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he since there are many things that increase vanity solomon is say you might want to argue about god about why things are the way they are maybe you think you're having such a neat time right now in your career and you you'd really like it to be that why why don't you argue with god he says don't do it he's mightier than you over in the book of romans uh, we read these words but indeed o oh man who are you who reply against god will the thing form say to him that formed it why have you made me like this does the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor in other words you're the creature he's the creator he's put life together this way you can argue with him if you want to but it's fuel you're not going to get anywhere with it so why don't you just accept the fact if you want to know meaning in your life here it is find god Get a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, and you will begin to discover that what he promised, he will deliver. He said, I am come that you might have life, that you might have it more abundantly. Where does that abundant, meaningful life come from? It comes from Almighty God. It's not available anywhere else. You can't get it anyplace else. You say, well, I don't think that's fair. That's not a problem. You can think whatever you want. God put it that way. And Solomon says, don't argue with God. And then the third thing he wants us to know is that God is willing to bring meaning to your life. He says, for who knows what is good for man in life, all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Well, that's a rhetorical question. Who knows? The only one who knows is the one who created us, and that's God. If you want to find meaning in life, you've got to get to God. You won't find it anywhere else. I don't know how to say that in any different way. Meaning in life is found in God. And then the last question he asks is, who can tell a man what will happen to him under the sun? God alone is in charge of your future. Now watch carefully how logistically, how logically Solomon creates this. He says, the reason life is the way it is is because God ordained it that way. Don't spend any time arguing with him because you won't win. If you want meaning in your life, God is the answer. If you want to know your future, God's the one who has in charge, who's in charge. So he just brings us all the way through this whole argument and he brings us back down to where we are right now do you want to know meaning in life it's found only in god do you need a career yes be successful as you can be there's not anything wrong with being wealthy there's certainly not anything wrong with being successful but there is something wrong with looking to wealth or success to find the ultimate meaning in your life because that meaning is found only in god during the fires here in El Cajon, a number of our people have experienced loss. And uh, one of the families have have a home right up here, right above us, and they have been in this church as long as I have. They've been here longer than I have. They're sweet, wonderful people who have given so much of themselves over the years to this church. Well, their house burned to the ground. It was in the fire that we thought was coming down the mountain that would have burned up this church. I talked to Lee shortly after the fire, and he, he said, Pastor Jeremiah, he said I didn't have time to do anything. I ran in there as fast as I could. I got three things out of that fire. He said, I, he said, I got a set of three engineering books because he's a civil engineer. He said, I got Henry Morris's study Bible, and he said, I got your book, The Sanctuary, which is a devotional book. And then he said, I want to tell you something. He said, that devotional book, he said, have you read that thing? <laughs> He said, you know what, Pastor? He said, every single day what I read in that devotional book was what I needed for what I was experiencing. Now, here's what I want you to remember. His wife was back with his daughter who was going through chemotherapy. He had to call his wife on the phone and tell her that their house had burned to the ground. And I'll tell you, when I heard that, I kind of sucked in my breath, and you know what he told me? And this is paraphrased as I remember it. He said, Pastor, you know, my wife and I have talked about what's happened to us in these last days, and he said, God has been so good to us. He said, we've experienced very, very few difficult things in life, and for some reason that we don't understand, God has trusted us with some trouble right now, and we know He's going to be with us in the midst of it and help us through it, and we're just honoring Him during this time and trusting Him for every, everything that we need. That's what happens when you have God. Have you ever heard people say, how in the world would somebody go through this if they didn't have God? Well, you know what? Don't experiment. Don't try. Get God now. Find Jesus Christ as your personal Savior at this very moment. You don't know what the future holds. One thing you do know, if you have God in your life, he's enough to get you through anything you will ever face. Because if he's going to give you eternity, don't you think he can handle this life too? (laughs) Amen, he can. And he's the qualitative difference. He's the battery. (laughs) He's the missing ingredient. You say, how do I get to God? Well, you get to God through Jesus Christ, because this is what he said. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So to get to God and get God in your life, you have to accept Jesus Christ into your heart. You do that by prayer.